0: Welcome to episode 42 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvel's Countdown podcast. The podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The Countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us for the second and certainly not last time is Mr. Stephen Lacey of the Fantastic Cast and other podcasts. Welcome back, Stephen.
1: It's good to be back. It's been a while since we've done this.
0: It has been. Those who've been listening know that Stephen was last with us for episode 74. So it's probably going to be, I haven't checked, but may possibly be the longest gap between
1: episodes for anyone who appears more than once. And I'm sure I'll be time for the shortest gap, knowing what's coming next week.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's uh, you and John and Wilson are going to be tied
1: for that one. (laughs) I'd like to correct something, an error I made on my first appearance on this show, where I said my show is The Fantastic Us and didn't mention my wonderful co-host Andy Leyland. And I should absolutely mention him, because he took me to town on that quite a lot off-air on a recording a couple of weeks ago. So I should point out The Fantastic House would be nothing without Andy, not least of which, because he writes half the synopses, and I really don't like doing that.
0: Yeah, it's one of those shows where if it was just one of you, it wouldn't be what it is. It's a great one to listen to, and part of that is because you guys mesh so well in your conversations. And we're drunk.
1: It took a lot of drinking to be ready to record at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, I have to say. No, uh, we, we're we not. We've, we've literally done drinking on the podcast once. That was to celebrate 100 episodes. No, I, I, I don't think I could have done the show without Andy. And if Andy ever said I need to stop, then the show would just end. I wouldn't look for a new co-host. I wouldn't do it by myself. It's very much about what he and I do. And I, I think you're right. That is what makes the show so special. It, it's Andy's contributions. Yeah. Right. Is that is that enough for you, Andy? Can you get off my back?
0: Well, we'll assume we just heard that.
1: Yeah, it's okay. It's all right.
0: <laughs> yeah, good enough. All right, so we are assembled here to discuss the works of another Brit, or at least one other Brit. Or actually, I believe he's Scottish, isn't he? We
1: won't confuse well, the two. Scotland is part of Britain, and, and they're both Brits. In fact, all three of them are Brits because Paul Neary's a Brit as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, we have The Ultimates. Now, this is one of the cases where we're deviating from the way that The 75 Greatest Marvels was officially published. I've been trying to stay to it, but this is one where I just have to assume that it's a mistake. Given that people were voting through free-form email, I would assume that means that there is some poor college intern going through this, and a poor college intern in 2014 would have been fairly young in 2002 when this series started and wouldn't necessarily know that Ultimates had multiple volumes. So I suspect that the voters were asking for the Ultimates Volume 1, and it was listed as the Ultimates Issue 1.
1: And I completely back you up on that, because I don't think Ultimates... Issue number one is a particularly good comic.
0: No, we'll get into that in a little more detail in a moment, but we are dealing with The Ultimates volume one, which is issues one through 13. The creative team was fairly consistent here. It was written by Mark Millar, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary and Andrew Curry, colored by Paul Mounts, lettered by Chris Iliopoulos. The editing team included Nick Lowe, Mackenzie Cadenhead, and Stephanie Moore as assistant editors, C.B. Sabolski and Brian Smith as associate editors, Ralph Macchio as the editor, and Joe Casada as editor-in-chief. The cover dates for these 13 issues range from March 2002 to April 2004, and they were released from January 30th, 2002 to January 28th, 2004. And as already mentioned, this came in at number 42 in the countdown. So technical details out of the way, we'll drop in a promo for one of the shows Stephen is a part of,
1: The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s.
0: Join us as we take a look at...
1: The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee.
0: The Cree Scroll War
1: The arrival of Marvel Team-Up
0: Bill Murray as the Human Torch
1: Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne And of course, Marvel 2-in-1 All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher The Fantastic Cast Insert catchy tagline here Wait, what?
0: And we're back. Alright, so we should probably talk a little bit about The Ultimate Line. We did that a bit in episode 75, right before the first time you joined us.
1: Mm-hmm. The Ultimate Universe is something that was huge and massive in the year 2000, and it turns out that in the week we're recording this, Marvel are publishing the first issue of the very final Ultimate miniseries, at a point where the Ultimate Universe just feels so irrelevant, it's unbelievable. So in two thousand. Uh, the Ultimate Universe launch there were two launch titles. It was Ultimate Spider Man and Ultimate X-Men. Ultimate Spider Man by Brian Bendis and Mark Bagley and Ultimate X-Men by Mark Miller. And you know what? I've forgotten to look up which QBit it was, but it was one of the qubits. Adam or Andy, who can get there first? <laughs> I think it was Andy. Let's double check that. Adam Quebet.
0: Yeah it's Adam Kebert on pencils, art T Bird on Inks.
1: Yeah. But there were two launch comics So Ultimate Spider-Man launched first, Ultimate X-Men was supposed to launch at the same time, but because it was a qubit on pencils, it was delayed. Who'd have thought it? But both of these took a very back-to-basics approach, discarding all continuity and getting back to what the creators believed was the core concept of the title. So in terms of Spider-Man, this was being launched about a year after the John Byrne Chapter 1 revamp of the Spider-Man titles, which hadn't done a very good job of handling Spider-Man's continuity. It's a couple of years after the conclusion of the clone saga, which had done a very bad job of handling continuity, as I'm sure listeners to the episode will have picked up on. So Ultimate Spider-Man stripped away and made it about a 15-year-old boy in high school and it kept it as a 15-year-old boy in high school. Um it, none of this graduating after 30 issues and growing up stuff. It made it very much a teenage focused book. Ultimate X-Men, it was about mutants who are hated by everyone. Uh, fighting against a mutant terrorist called Magneto and the Magneta, and that was a, a very Mark Miller character. The other series which came along before this was Marvel Team Up, which was Brian Bendis and guest artists, and it was expanding the Marvel universe introducing characters. So Ultimate Iron Man appeared for the first time in Ultimate Marvel Team Up. Same with the Ultimate Hulk, and probably the the biggest thing is the destruction that's being talked about at the start of the Ultimates is what happened in the Ultimate Team Up issue, mm-hmm. and then the Ultimates came along in two thousand and two, and this is probably the biggest thing there is in the Ultimate Universe. Because after this, you had an Ultimate Fantastic Four series. There were lots of mini-series. There was an event called Ultimatum, which I think everyone would like to just forget happened. And then numerous relaunches with the goal of trying to revitalize the Ultimate Universe. But each time, just it dies that little bit further until it's literally dying now, along with all everything else, because everything dies.
0: Yeah, a large part of the imprint was as a good starting point for new readers. It was a way yeah. to say, read issue ones that make sense with modern technology, modern coloring, modern storytelling techniques. And for that end, it served as a fantastic jumping on point. The Brian Bendis run on Ultimate Spider-Man is one of the longest quality
1: runs in any comic.
0: There's a lot of great stuff in that one in particular.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's not just modern technology for producing the comics. It's, it's updating it and setting things in the, in the present. So Peter Parker doesn't get a job at the Daily Bugle for taking pictures because he turns out he's a bad photographer everything's blurry because he's taking pictures from his belt whilst he's Spider-Man, but he knows some coding and can help the Daily Bugle website out, and that's how he gets in into the Bugle.
0: Spider-Man is a
1: web designer. Ha ha ha. You know what? I never got that. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> um. But when it comes to the Ultimate... Actually, no, just one other thing to say about the Ultimate Universe. The, the four key concepts of the Ultimate Universe, Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four, and the Ultimates, all came from two writing creators that's brian bendis and mark miller they launched each one of those concepts and they are the two most important creative figures in the ultimate universe probably the third most important is warren ellis who has sort of dived in here and there and done some really interesting mini series he did the ultimate galactus stuff he did a fantastic run on ultimate fantastic four which is one of my favorite runs of comics ever with Stuart timmerman who he later partners with on next wave agents of hate which is what we talked about previously Mm -hmm. But it does all go horribly wrong when Mark Miller leaves. They hand the Ultimates over to Jeff Love. And then Ultimatum comes along and no, 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 no. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was close to my jumping off point for the Ultimates. Because it's one of the issues with it when they do the modern storytelling techniques and they had the crossovers that they had on a regular basis is that you lose that easy jumping on point for new readers to come in and pick up any book they want. Yeah. So a few years in the run... The main point of the Ultimate Universe didn't apply, which is why they keep doing relaunches and reboots. But when they're doing that in the main universe too, which are new readers going to pick up?
1: Now, you see, having said all of that, I jumped in on Ultimate Spider-Man around issue 68, 69. It was basically the, the body swap 2 of where Spider-Man wakes up in Wolverine's body and vice versa. But it's, it's pretty much the halfway point of the run.
0: Yeah, pretty darn close to it. Yeah, And the Ultimates itself, we should mention... This was effectively Ultimate Avengers. Editor in chief Joe Casada said repeatedly there would be no Ultimate Avengers when this was coming out. And he was kind of doing that as a loophole. They had plans for this. But most of the Marvel comic book market is in North America. And as far as North Americans were concerned up to this point, the Avengers in the main universe wasn't selling terribly well at this stage. So the vast majority of people who knew the Avengers name in North America knew it primarily based on the 1997 film with Uma Thurman and Ray Fine, which was universally lambasted as being vastly inferior to the British TV series that it was based off of.
1: Yeah, we, we I was at a pub quiz a few years ago run by the website Den of Geek. It was a movie-based pub quiz, and they gave a prize to the last team involved, and they said, oh, we've got you The Avengers on DVD, and everyone, oh, okay, well done. You know, they came in last place, they got a decent thing, and then, of course, they produced six copies of the Uma Thurman Ralph finds Avengers on DVD because they're cruel, cruel people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not just that. Um, in terms of Avengers in comics at this time, the fantastic Buzik and Perez run, which had kicked off the Heroes, um, Heroes Return era, that had finished up. Perez had left. Buzik had left. We're into, I think, this is the Jeff Johns time, and Chuck Austin's just on the horizon, and Chuck Austin should never be on the horizon.
0: Uh, not if he's facing you, no. If he's going the other way, the horizon
1: is a good place for him. But, um, yeah, it's not a great period in Avengers history at all.
0: So that's largely what this is, and this is the story that kicked off these characters. I mean, as Steven said, Iron Man and Hulk had already appeared in Ultimate Marvel Team-Up, but you didn't really get a lot of backstory for them.
1: No, they're, they're, they're very basic things. It's more about a redesign of Iron Man's armor, for instance.
0: Yeah, there's a bit of that. The Hulk changes color, which we'll get into in a moment. Mm -hmm. Although the Hulk issues of that Marvel team up, they were again written by Bendis. You do get the point where Spider-Man is telling the Hulk, hey, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, which was a very nice touch. (laughs) This story then goes in a very different direction. So the the Bendis written Ultimate titles, particularly Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate Marvel team up, and some that come later, are a lot of it seems to bring back that fun and vibrant feel of the Silver Age just setting it in the early 2000s. While there's a lot going on here, there's a lot of action, I don't know if this is really that fun, vibrant Silver Age. They got a little bit of that early Fantastic Four where the teammates don't get along, but other than
1: that, this is not Silver Age. No, it's a fun read, but it's a very cynical and fun read.
0: It is. I mean, we can go through it the the plot in in a little bit of detail, but... Yeah, it won't take long, will it? (laughs) No, it's... Especially if you've seen the, the movies, they are inspired in part by the structure of this at any rate. The team roster is very similar to the Avengers films. So the members of the roster we have here are, you know, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Black Widow, Hawkeye. We do have Giant Man and the Wasp who haven't appeared in films yet, and uh, as well as Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, who we never really see in action, but that could just be because Quicksilver is moving too fast for that, or at least that's what he claims all the way through. And they're all assembled by Nick Fury, who's putting together a team to face the threats of the modern age. And that doesn't go quite as well as planned. Uh, They do need something to draw them together—a combination of a threat or tragedy or something along those lines. So while the films use the death of Phil Coulson to do that, the comics have your—you know—Bruce Banner, slightly neurotic. He's feeling overshadowed. He's feeling stressed. He's feeling pressured. He's being rejected by Betty Ross while they're on their trial separation and you know he's been trying to crack the super soldier formula for years even with the actual captain america back he can't seem to do it so he takes the formula he concocted on his own that turned him into the hulk in the first place mixes it with some of cap's blood injects it into himself and becomes a new grey hulk so a different hulk this time and goes on a rampage killing hundreds the team pulls together to stop him and the general public find out about it but they don't find out that bruce banner is the hulk they don't understand where the threat came from only that you know there's this force of destruction that probably could have destroyed New York if left unchecked, was stopped by the Ultimates. And we go from there into the introduction of the Chitauri, who were created for this story, even though they make references to Skrulls. It sounds like Mark Millar just thought that was a stupid name and say, yeah, some people call Skrulls, but we're the Chitauri. And these are the aliens that invaded Earth at the end of the first Avengers film although they don't show the shape-shifting abilities that they have here. That's the second major threat they fight, and the team does pull together and manage to save the world from an alien invasion that started in 1777, I believe, was the date given. But that's by and large the story. It's putting the team together and yeah, dealing with the, those threats that they face. So yeah, as Steven said, it's pretty easy to synopsize. and we can go into more details with the infighting in the team, and probably should, particularly with the Hank and Jan story.
1: Yeah, so that- this is kind of pulling little bits from all over the history of Marvel comics. So you've obviously got what happens with Captain America from Avengers number four back in 1964. You've got the mad strife between Hank and Jan and the abuse that comes from that, from, I forget the issue reference, but from the early 80s, uh, which is mm-hmm. taken to a really nasty extreme here. You've got scrolls, and the, the hint is that they're involved in a much bigger conflict, which is potentially the kree Scroll war and that overlapping onto the Earth, which is obviously a very famous Avenger storyline. But there's a lot more going on in here as well. No one is quite as they seem. Captain America isn't the full-blown 616 hero. There's a, a very nasty edge to him. The point where one of the most famous panels in this book is when he's fighting the Chitauri leader. The Chitauri leader goes, you should be surrendering, you should surrender, you should surrender. Cap yells, surrender, then takes his shield and slams it into his the edge of it into his head. Do you think this letter on my helmet stands for France? Which is... First of all, a funny little gag. Secondly, quite disrespectful to the French, the point where Ed Brubaker wrote a scene in his early Captain America stories, which was a flashback to Steve Rogers in France, doing nothing but paying tribute to the people fighting against the Nazis there as a a response to this. So there's a very (laughs) fascistic edge to Captain America, which grows, um, certainly in the second series, to quite an alarming extent. Thor is basically regarded by everyone as a bit of a nutjob, Nobody believes that he's off fighting the Midgard Serpent. Uh, in fact, what's the line from towards the end? Where I just thought he was a lunatic, and Thor goes, yeah, but a lunatic with a really big hammer.
0: Yeah. yeah, the big scary hammer. Tony Stark might actually take him at face value. He seems to be the only one who does it, but whether he's just, he actually believes him or if he figures this guy has legitimate power, he has the ability to teleport stuff, I'm just going to play along. That could be in line with this Tony Stark. Mm. One of the issues I tend to have with Mark Millar, especially in a story we're going to be talking about at podcast number two, as well as some of his other works, he consistently writes his scientists like cold and unfeeling jerks. Yeah, This one doesn't flag to me as much, it doesn't irritate me as it does when he wrote Fantastic Four or Civil War or some of the other stories, because in this one, the entire cast
1: is made of insensitive jerks. Yeah, I mean, you can laugh along with them, but you would never, you'd actually feel for any of them. As uncomfortable as it is to watch Hank beat the crap out of Jan in issue number six. Both Hank and Jan are written as incredibly unlikable. They do not have a functioning relationship at all. There's some weird power play stuff going on in there. Bruce Banner is written as a really odious little git. I almost said a much reader word, but I can't remember what I can get away with saying on your podcast. And the relationship he has with Betty in this is there's some really weird sexual thing going on where she's obsessed by the power of the Hulk and gets turned on by the thought of him eating Chitauri and things like that and it's it's really not nice to read but it also <laughs> fits within this
0: it does it's it is a consistent tone throughout and it does work but yeah these are not these are not likable people not, not at one all. of them
1: yeah nick fury is manipulating the hell out of them i think the, the most likable people are uh, black widow and hawkeye cuz they're just doing the job yeah there's no pretensions about what they do. there's none of this. We're superhero stuff. they know they're they're black ops agents, and that's it
0: yeah yeah they they rack up a greater body count yeah between the Hulk, Black Widow, and Hawkeye here. This may have a higher body count than well at least a body count that sticks than any other Marvel story with you know possible exceptions for Kang Dynasty where Washington was wiped out, and things like that. This is a high body count, but a lot of that Black Widow and Hawkeye essentially take out over 120 chitari agents just on their own.
1: Yep. Yeah, so there's a great action sequence at the start of issue 7, where they it's very influenced by the lobby assault scene from The Matrix, but they basically go into a skyscraper, clear it, and then clear out a nearby skyscraper as well. Uh, I think we should probably talk about widescreen superheroics, because this is probably the, if you'll excuse the pun, the most ultimate version of that. So, Blaine, are you <laughs> familiar with... Um, Stormwatch and the follow-up The Authority.
0: I'm aware of them and their reputation. They're on my to-read list, but I haven't actually picked
1: them up yet. because so Stormwatch was a, a core title in the Wildstorm universe and along the way, Warren Ellis came on and started writing it and because Warren Ellis is Warren Ellis, he wrote it for a bit, then decided to throw everything out and he had the great idea of killing off most of the team of Stormwatch, not in a Stormwatch title, but in a crossover one-off with Aliens. Um, so in what seemed like a throwaway one-off issue that was out of continuity it turns out the entire thing span on that coming out of the destruction of stormwatch was the authority which was a 12 issue series by warren ellis with brian hitch on artwork and that was the first time widescreen superhero comics have really come in where the visuals were almost more important than the plot the plots weren't particularly detailed the characters were very broad strokes but it was all about you turn over a page and you go wow at the moment they've produced on the page When Ellis and Hitch left, do you want to guess who came along and took over the writing? I believe it was Mark Miller. It was Mark Miller. So Mark Miller came on board with Frank Quitely, and this is where Quitely's reputation really boomed. And again, it was all about widescreen comics. Um, So once Miller and Hitch were announced for the Ultimates, it came not really as much of a surprise that these were big action sequence, cinematic scenes. There are a huge number of double-page spreads. And this book just pops off the page. It looks like, to be honest, it doesn't look like anything else in comics. Even Brian Hitch's work after this doesn't look like Ultimate.
0: No, it doesn't. And as you said, it is very much widescreen. Even going through the the pages, we don't have a lot of panel layouts where the panels are side by side. We are more likely to have a page with, you know, four or five panels that span the entire width of the page. Mm-hmm. Than than having side-by-side side panels to give that widescreen feel. This even feels like the start of Mark Miller's you know, massive pursuit of Hollywood, which has culminated so much later, to the point yep. where the characters even have a discussion of who would play us if they cast us in the films.
1: And who does Nick Fury choose?
0: Oh, Samuel L. Jackson.
1: Of course. It, during uh, Another notable thing is during the initial conversation between Fury and Banner, there's a reference made to Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. When the Hulk is rampaging after Betty in issue 5, he's Crying out for Freddie Prince Jr., a very contemporary reference at the time, but nowadays I can't imagine anyone's thinking of Freddie Prinze Jr. as a cultural touchstone.
0: Yeah, and they also have Shannon
1: Elizabeth, so... Yeah. Oh yes, in space. <laughs> and how can that not be a good thing? Shannon Elizabeth, in space! Yeah. But it, this whole thing, I was rereading it for the first time in a couple of years this morning, I'm realizing just how much this functions as storyboards from an Avengers movie. If that movie had been made in 2002, I think the tone would have struck absolutely. This version, though, of The Avengers, The Ultimates, wouldn't work on screen now as part of the Marvel Universe. It's just too cynical and dark and unlikable in places Um, in terms of the characters. It's still a massively likable book. You just have to accept that everyone in it is a massive git. And yes, I am doing that thing of using British swear words to get past the censors. Well, we're okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) I was rereading the start of issue 7, the assault on the tower block, and there's a 8. Sorry, it's issue 8, I'm looking at it now. And what she does is she jumps from one building to another across the street, 40 floors up. There's a helicopter above her, and at the right moment the dude lets the gun go. She catches it mid-leap, lands, and then starts shooting people. If that's not designed for almost a Zack Snyder-esque slow-mo moment, I don't know what is.
0: Yeah, especially the way it's handled. I mean, this Black Widow, they have allusions to her million dollars worth of upgrades. So she is yeah. enhanced. And this was planned. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't, you know, the soldier saw her coming and dropped the weapon. Hawkeye says, I need help. Black Widow contacts the helicopter, says, what altitude do you have? Okay, drop the gun in five, four, three, two, one, now. So when she's running, she's timed it to catch the gun exactly where it will be. Yeah. Given the altitude of the helicopter. So this, as capable as the 616 Black Widow is, the ultimate Black Widow is probably even more capable and exceptional. Although... I do still have a bit of a, a preference for the
1: 616 because she's doing it without a million dollars worth of enhancements. Mm-hmm. As I said, I think the, Widow and Hawkeye come off the best and there is a certain level of fun to that. Talking of though the, the, the cinematic nature of the artwork, you might have noticed if you were doing your maths, you'd have gone, hmm, that's two years for 13 issues. There must have been some delays and boy were there delays with this. This cemented Brian Hitch's reputation as someone who didn't draw very quickly. And in him, the detail in this is phenomenal. There's not a single lazy panel in any of this. But you could go for six or seven months between issues. I was in Edinburgh in the summer of 2000 and I guess it would have been 2003 and I bought issues 10 and 11 off the rack. They've even got the Forbidden Planet price sticker still on them. And I'm looking and going, I paid 155 for a comic. That, I wish I had those prices now. And then I backtracked and picked up uh, the first trade and I managed to get hold of 789 Yeah. Did not get hold of 12 or 13 for best part of another year because of the amount of time. I, I remember saying actually to the guy in the shop that I really liked this. I um, I can't wait for the next issue and he just laughed at me.
0: Yeah, the the actual publication dates if we are going by uh, the DC Indexes or Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The first seven issues hit on a monthly cycle. So in January, February, March, April, May, June, July. Eight came out in September rather than August. Nine hit the following February. So there's a five month gap. Three months for 10, two months for 11, two months for 12, and then four months for 13. So as m- much as people were lamenting and complaining about the delays, it was never more than a five-month gap, which, I mean, this uh, is one of the first no, comics I'm, I'm that sorry. came out with
1: a gap. <laughs> you, you, you can't say, well, well there were delays, but it was only five months. Five months is a long time. Yeah, five f- months is a ridiculously long time. Yeah. Five and
0: months is five times longer than it should have taken,
1: but... You know, with, with- Between two series of Ultimates and the John Cassidy X-Men, there was a point where you would just laugh at any attempt to produce release dates for these things because they would just get pushed back constantly. Another series from around this time that got hideously delayed was the Jeff Loeb Superman Batman series, which suffered incredible delays, which you can laugh at. But I never liked doing that because I also know at the time that was the point where Jeff Loeb was losing his son. Mm-hmm. And there is a fairly decent excuse for not producing comic scripts if you've just lost your 15-year-old kid. Yeah, There wasn't anything like that with Brian Hitch. He wasn't dealing with illness or anything like that. He was just taking his time, producing something that looked amazing. It's not like it was three months off drawing, then slapdash stuff. There is not a single lazy panel in this series. And it looks phenomenal. But it yeah. was delayed hugely.
0: It was. And it was, as we said, it was...
1: This was one of the first times the big two put out
0: a, a comic that deviated from the monthly schedule without fill-ins, without artist changes. This is when Marvel said, well, you know what? People like this creative team. Let's keep this team together. And there's up and downsides to that. Marvel did that to focus on the trades and keeping a consistent look in the trades. And I can see why. Because that was one of the guys that was picking up Ion from DC as that came out. And that hit the shelves on schedule every time. But man, the art substitutions were totally inconsistent.
1: Yeah, but Ion's not on the same level as The Ultimates. This was a huge no. bestseller from the word go. And I think it's the right thing to do. When it came to Ultimates Volume 2, you would have things like ultimate annuals dropped in. And they were actually two of them in the time it took to get all the issues out. And they functioned as fill-ins, as it were. One of them focused on one of the characters who became one of the giant men in the second series, for instance. Mm-hmm. But you were still sitting there, you know, waiting for an issue to arrive.
0: Yeah, the annual two dropped between issues 12 and 13. To fill in a six-month gap with only a two- and a four-month gap. And so. it was
1: set after the end of the series. Yeah, so
0: it it was delayed, but, I mean, we still saw Ultimates 2 sooner than, say, Daredevil Target number
1: two. Yeah, but they weren't even attempting to produce that. Yeah, Let, let's. There was a point where they just put a bullet into that. So, you know, bringing up something like that where it was clear they would just yeah. weren't going to attempt to finish the series as opposed to the thing where they were attempting to. Plus, of course, at the end of Ultimates, the, uh, Volume 2, had the fold-out of everything. But that, that that's a different series for a different show. We need to get back to uh, this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway,
0: I think we've actually alluded to some of the impact this had on the industry. This was, as we said, the first time where they put up with delays from the creative teams rather than reassigning the jobs or replacing them. And for a while, Marvel was doing that, and they had a lot of issues that were coming out slow or delayed, some due to yeah. creative teams. The Astonishing X-Men run that Stephen Lacey mentioned earlier... It wasn't the creative team on that one. That was Marvel saying, and ending this big, we're going to use it to reset the status of the X-Men core of the universe and just sat on finished issues long enough to get all the everything else lined up to work with the coordination, which is why there's a long gap between volumes two and three in that one. There were some
1: artist delays along the way. What? But... A, a sly X X-Men had almost no impact on anything going on around it, other than removing Kitty from the table, except that she wasn't appearing in any of the books.
0: Yeah, they lined it up simultaneously, and right after Giant Size X-Men, there was a team roster change in the X-Men books that didn't need to happen at that time, but
1: they decided to market the end of the
0: Whedon-Cassidy run as the kickoff for it.
1: I, I, I refuse to believe that version of events, because it just sounds like crap. Um, and it probably was crap if Marvel was saying that, but um, that's just... Uh. But again, that's sort of the impact
0: that this had on the industry, was proving, at least to Marvel, that there may be advantages to keeping a creative team together and behind schedule. They have moved away from that. They're not even keeping creative teams together really anymore.
1: No, uh, and in fairness it gave the result that The Ultimates is one of the few perennial titles they have in their trade paperback library because Marvel struggle very much in the trade paperback world. Um, You might see loads of them on the shelves but they don't sell. Brian Cronin, on his Tilting at Windmills column he, he has access as a bookseller to the data of all books being sold across the United States and he passes all of that for graphic novel sales from all publishers whether they're literary publishers so like Diary of the Wimpy Kid qualifies as that for instance and DC I think come in at something like third or fourth on the list. Image coming top out of all the comics publishers because of The Walking Dead. Marvel is something like ninth because they don't have a back catalogue a stable of titles like Sandman, Watchmen, V for Vendetta, Preacher, things like that which will constantly sell. Mm-hmm. The Ultimates is one of the few that they can keep doing but um, it's not something they, they still don't necessarily keep in print permanently.
0: No, and I don't know how well it's going to continue selling when the current Secret Wars event is done.
1: Even major runs which have had impact in films, the Ed Baker Winter Soldier stuff, uh, you try and buy anything beyond those first 12 issues. You know, try and buy The Death of Captain America. Unless your comic shop happened to order lots of trades when they were initially put out, you won't find that and they won't be able to get hold of it.
0: Yeah, Marvel really seems to be shifting to Marvel Digital Unlimited for their back catalogue. That and the Epic Collections, but those are kind of cherry-picked to be collections of classic major stories, but they're more runs than stories, right?
1: Yes, well, the idea with the Epic Collection, this is what I absolutely love, is it'll be everything from, so in terms of Fantastic Four, it'll be everything from Fantastic Four number one all the way through to the end, with relevant tines from other issues, but the focus with those is not reprinting stuff you can already get. So, it's mm-hmm. not reprinting the stuff you can that have been recently collected. They're trying to bring things which haven't ever been collected. That's why the Spider Man one, for instance, started with some Eric Larson because that's mm-hmm. not been collected in a very long time.
0: Yeah, and that's why with some of them, you'll see like, you know, volume five and nine are on the shelves, and only those yeah. you're not unable to find one through four and six through eight. They just haven't printed them yet.
1: Yeah, so it's a very much a long term planning thing. I think they realised that the essentials, are, one, probably weren't priced correctly. Uh, and two, weren't, um, as things start to diversify in the 80s, aren't really set up to collect storylines properly.
0: Yeah, it's the impression I'm getting from just some of the retailers I've been talking to is that once you get past that core 60s stuff that really launched the Marvel Universe and the Wolverine and the major titles, when you start getting into the less popular titles, a lot of retailers mm. simply weren't stocking the essentials because the amount of profit compared to the amount of shelf space that they use was rather poor. Yeah, They'd rather absolutely. Slip like four or five 20 to $25 books in that space than one $20 book.
1: Or you end up with a situation a bit like DC had with the Hellblazer stuff, where you hadn't collected things sequentially. There was no way for anyone coming in <laughs> detail, this is the start of a run. Everything was like Hellblazer subtitle, Hellblazer subtitle with no sense of what comes before or after. So they went back and republished everything but sequential volumes. Brilliant move by them, um, I have to say, because I've been able to go and buy some Hellblazer trades. And that is, I guess, a similar thing to what's happening with the Epic Collections, except they seem to put some really good thought into how they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. But we've digressed slightly from Ultimates again, haven't we? (laughs) We have.
0: But I think some of that is just launching because this it's not just representative, it's a story. It's a representative of a change in mindset of the publishers themselves. Absolutely, This, This is one of the stories when the trade paperback collections were really kicking off. Up to this point, you could find Masterworks and Essentials and that sort of thing. But The Ultimate Line seems to be the first point where they dedicated themselves to collecting complete stories and story arcs and getting them out there in numbered volumes so you can walk into a bookshop and read from the start till now.
1: Definitely. In fact, that's how I got into Ultimate Spider-Man. I started buying late 60s, early 70s, but I was backtracking in the trades and got the first nine or ten before I caught up.
0: Yeah, I did something similar. I just jumped on a little bit sooner because my first exposure to Ultimate Spider-Man was the free comic day issue. So they weren't as far along in the series when I picked that up, but I read it, really enjoyed mm. it. And again, the trades were very easy to come by. Having that that depth of the trade paperback library really helps people get in.
1: As well as the impact on sort of the wider comics universe, the Ultimates spawned a second series, Ultimates Volume 2, um, which I... I think I actually prefer to Ultimates 1 because you have this great game of, in the earlier issues, spotting Loki popping up in the background of each issue, subtly manipulating things around Thor. There's some. I tell you what, when I was watching Age of Ultron and I saw Hawkeye's family, all I could think of is what happens to them in Ultimates Volume 2, which, which isn't very nice. It feels like the comebacks, because there's a, a moment in Ultimates 1 where it seems like the Ultimates has been blown up by a couple of nuclear bombs, and then they return because Thor did something. But the Ultimates are actually literally taken apart. Um, they're, they're, they're split up, and, and their confidence and trust in each other is destroyed. So when the comeback from that feels so much better, there is the phenomenal fold-out pages in the final issue, which are an absolute masterpiece. It's basically every single ultimate character fighting against the hordes of Asgardian whatever's unleashed by Loki. Yeah. So I, I think it, it hits a real peak with that. Yeah,
0: the uh, eight-page fold-out with eight instances of Quicksilver, because he's just yes. that
1: fast. <laughs> he's just that fast. Um, after that, Miller leaves the Ultimate Universe Um, for a bit. Hitch goes with him, cause, uh, and Jeff Loeb takes over with Joe Maserero for Ultimates 3. Ultimates 3 is not recommended at all. Ultimates 3 is a terrible, muddy mess of a comic, and uh, I just wouldn't get anywhere near it at all. Also not recommended is Ultimatum, which was the first end of the Ultimate Universe. Um, series mm-hmm. and that's terrible, utterly terrible. Then you go into um, the post-ultimate, ultimate comics, which is the return of Mark Miller, and these are fun. They're definitely not Ultimates one and two, um, but there's some fun stuff like Blade turns up for a vampire arc, which has a hilarious three-page sequence where he dreams he's in the Twilight universe, about to stake Bella and Edward, and it's such a glorious piss take of how bad all of those <laughs> books are. Um, and that's, I think, is one of the best things Miller's ever written. But that leads all leads into the idea that Nick Fury's running a second team of Ultimates, and uh, they end up having a conflict in New York, which is where Spider-Man gets shot, which leads to the death of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the death of Spider-Man kind of marks the end of Phase 2 of the Ultimate Universe, and then Jonathan Hickman takes over, and I can't begin to explain what happens there, because it just goes a bit weird.
0: Yeah, the death of Spider-Man, as listeners may recall, was actually my jumping-off point from the Ultimate Marvel Universe. Now that it's coming to a close and it's all on Digital Unlimited, by the time I'm done this podcast, I may go back and read it. Mm. There's other things I'm
1: discovering in this podcast that are higher priority reads. Yeah. My view on the kind of post-Death of spider stuff is the Miles Morales comics are brilliant. They're, they're genuinely great comics. Everything else is just a hot mess. The uh, Ultimate X-Men just disappears up its own backside. Ultimate Avengers tries to do some interesting stuff, but just settles for mass destruction on an unsatisfying scale. And then, oh, then it's the ultimate Galactus meets real Galactus as a result of something that happened in some terrible crossover involving Ultron.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that was Age of Ultron leading into Cataclysm.
1: Yeah, just oh no, just stick post post um Death Spider Man, just stick with Mars Morales. That that's my recommendation,
0: and that's a recommendation I've heard from many other people. Mm. Right, so I think we spoke a little bit about how we each. Got first exposed to this story when you said you picked up the trade and then did the back issues. I was similar, I was enjoying Ultimate Spider Man and Ultimate X Men enough. I just bought the whole Ultimate line in trades at the time.
1: Yeah, well, this is my first Ultimate full stop. I was in Edinburgh for the festival, I was with my university theatre company, and I was supposed to be flowering on the Royal Mile to try and get people to come see our crappy shows, but I really hated doing that. So I skived off and spent a lot of time in Forbidden Planet buying comics, and that's where I got into Ultimates. Um, Yeah. It was a real shame to actually, when I finally dropped Ultimate Spider-Man, I realized that was um, such a core part of my comics reading that I just said I've I'm, I'm had enough with it. Was, it was looming into yet another crossover, and I went, no, done.
0: Yeah, as we said, the the purpose of the Ultimate line seems to have been eroded over the years and has been kind of dropped, which is why I think... We know Miles Morales is going to survive Secret Wars and mm-hmm. be, be part of an Avengers team.
1: I would imagine ultimate nick fury might survive ultimate reed richards might survive as well because he would be a, a decent villain beyond that no interest in anyone else from there
0: yeah even the well we had the ultimate daredevil but yeah and i'm a huge daredevil fan that was one of my issues with ultimatum is they didn't even give
1: him the dignity of an on-screen death yeah i was about to say he's dead
0: yeah one notch better than cyclops in the x-men films we actually see the corpse but that's about it
1: yeah yeah no yeah so the thing to remember is when the Ultimate Universe launched, it was huge. Uh, there was a point where Ultimate Spider-Man was outselling Amazing Spider-Man, for instance. Ultimate Avengers definitely... The Ultimates definitely outsold the Avengers. But as you said at the start of it, as the continuity becomes more and more complex, it's harder for new people to jump in. And most people chose... A lot of Ultimate fans chose Ultimatum as a jumping-off point because it was so terrible.
0: Yeah, but I mean, prior to that... Actually, prior to Ultimates 3, or really up prior to... Um, ultimate adventures with ron zimmerman if it had ultimate in the title it was selling top 10 period not marvel top 10 like industry top 10 for monthly comics
1: if you ever come across ultimate adventures just don't just don't it's kind of sad that there's more to warn people away from in the in the ultimate universe than there is to say come and read this but what there is to say come and read this is some of the best comics you'll read
0: yeah if if you're looking at Ultimate's Ultimate Spider Man or Ultimate X Men with low volume numbers, grab it. They're worth it. If you're looking at Ultimate Daredevil or Ultimate Daredevil and Electra, grab it. Even the Marvel team up that we mentioned, it doesn't completely fit in the Ultimate Universe because when they relaunched some characters properly, notably the Fantastic Four, they took a different take. So some of what you see there isn't consistent with later incarnations of the character. Yeah. Not to the degree of the Orson Scott Card Ultimate Iron Man miniseries, which was later retconned as a cartoon about Iron Man made in the universe that. James Rhodes would bug Tony Stark about.
1: Which is a shame, because I actually liked a lot of the ideas in that.
0: <laughs> yeah, there were some decent ideas that were inconsistent with some of what we'd seen in the rest of the universe, and at that point, it almost felt more like trying to distance themselves from Orson Scott Carr, but they're still producing the Ender books, so I yeah. don't know. So I think we've covered pretty much everything of major importance from the plot. I mean, as aside I mean the one other moment that I do want to draw attention to, as Stephen has said, the, the domestic violence between Hank and Jen is really up the scale. We find out Hank has a history of domestic violence with Jan. It's not, you know, one panel that the artist blows into much greater proportion than the scripter wanted, as it was in the 616. This is, you know, right down to him sending his ants after her and
1: spraying her with bug spray. Because she's a mutant part insect, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nasty. It's a nasty... You can look at it and read this as this is a very nasty book. You can also read that this is a fun action book. At no point can you go, this is a really positive, enjoyable book with lots of relatable characters, because they certainly aren't. And I think if you read Mark Miller's post-Marvel stuff, especially, so uh, I'm I'm going to allude to a naughty word here, but remember when he launched Nemesis, and his first tagline for that was, what if Batman was a C-word? Yeah, He kind of basically did, what if the Avengers were a bunch of C-words?
0: Effectively, yeah. I mean, the the only one who's got some redeeming qualities is Captain America. I mean... He does feel more like the right-wing soldier from World War II, the kind of guy who would have been fighting. I'd expect Hmm. a little more liberal when you're fighting against the fascists than he is here.
1: Yes, and he really takes the fascist element, certainly in the second one. There are some touching moments. I love him reconnecting with Bucky uh, when he wakes up, (laughs) and the sadness of that. His letter to Gale, his excerpts are shown over the images of him going into the water, are really quite touching. But there is very much, like, um, there are some really unsettling bits in it. And in the second series, when the Ultimates all decide that Thor is just a guy with a history of mental health problems, he's just like, well, he's a he's a nutjob. I'm going to punch him until he falls unconscious. And it's like, that's a really disconcerting way of viewing mental illness.
0: Yeah, but it was a 1940s way of viewing mental illness. It was lock him up, keep him out of sight.
1: But- yes, but there's none of there's none of the subtleties then view that through the lens of having someone comment on it or saying, this is a view of the time, it's not a view that should be held now. It's just put there and forward in his his heroic pose, full-page splatter, you're mental, mate, and I'm going to punch you.
0: Yeah, which, I mean, we get some of the predecessor for that here when he finds out what Hank did to Jan. He tracks Hank down on his own, claiming he's got Fury's authority, and beats the living tar out of him. That's the reason Giant Man isn't part of the big finale, is because Captain America has hospitalized him because he hospitalized Jan, and this Cap has some feelings for this Jan.
1: Yes. uh well they're in a relationship in the second volume yeah but it, it it's easier to go well it's a it's a it's a wife beater a domestic abuser so he, he kind of deserves that and I, I think that's playing on natural feelings that people might have even though you know i can't really condone anyone beating the crap out of anyone else
0: yeah it's i agree with Nick fury where you don't have permission to hurt him but absolutely bring him in I yeah mean, that message came through too late but yeah, I mean, domestic violence or violence of any kind should never be allowed to pass without a response. But then again, I'm the kind of guy that says violence is only permitted in defense of others or yourself, right? It's, yeah, don't throw the first punch, but use whatever violence is necessary to defuse a dangerous situation. And just the minimum required
1: to defuse a dangerous situation. Whereas Cap just went out and caused a massive fight, hoping he'd get big so he could cause lots of destruction.
0: Yeah, to the point where he's saying, grow, damn it! give me something I can hit. So it really feels like mm. Cap's frustration in this area is being taken out on Hank Pym, because it's, here's something you have permission to hit, go.
1: Yeah, we recorded Fantastic earlier, and uh, Andy reminded me of a comment I made on uh, the previous episode where you went, so what about deeper meanings? And we were talking about next one, and I just went, nope. And I kind of feel like I want to say the same with this. There aren't really any deeper meanings in it.
0: Yeah, aside from don't trust the media. Yes. I mean, yeah. Or
1: anyone with a German name who's a shape-changing alien.
0: Yeah, but I, I think the shape-changing alien bit is enough you don't need to worry about the german name (laughs) yeah that that's one thing that we see here there's you know mark millar doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for celebrities which is kind of funny coming from a guy who seems to be pushing so hard to be in hollywood but that some of that comes through you find out yeah the celebrities are just messed up people too they're not these people to be glorified and deified as they they can be and a lot of this it wouldn't surprise me mark millar firmly believes that you know what's being reported on in the mass media is just as inaccurate as this is and people are in control of the information that goes out and they're being force-fed lies. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I I can't imagine, you know, in, in a fight like this when Giant Man pins down the Hulk and calls him Banner when they're surrounded by innocent bystanders, I can't imagine that it wouldn't have leaked that Banner and the Hulk are the same
1: person. But they say they 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 whitewash that. Yeah. Uh no one out there knows that Banner is the Hulk.
0: Yeah. And I could I could see it not coming out in the press release, but the fact that Giant Man calls him Banner in front of that many people I don't know how that would have been effective. But yeah, it's it would have been a push. But that's yeah. the kind of thing Mark Miller is is known for. I mean, he's he's one of the few comic cr- creators out there who has a history of selling movie rights to his stories before he's
1: done writing the stories. <laughs> yes, uh, often before he's even started writing the stories.
0: Yeah, apparently now he's at that stage where, well, what's the point of writing it if it's not going to be sold as the movie? So he sells the movie rights first and then takes the time to do the scripts.
1: Yeah. Talking of movies, actually, I suppose we should say this was adapted loosely into an animated movie, which isn't very good.
0: Yeah, which had a a sequel, which also isn't very good.
1: There's the rather nice bit at the end of issue 12 where they need the Hulk, so they just kick Banner out of the helicopter. That's mirrored in uh, the Incredible Hulk movie. Where uh, in this point it's Edward Norton who just decides to throw himself out of the helicopter to bring the monster back. Yeah. It's a it's a really nice fish. And and uh somebody I read somewhere that um Cap jumping out of the plane without a parachute in the very first issue, it, he does that in Winter Soldier at the very start of that. He does, yeah. Yeah. And I think just generally in terms of how they pull the team together, whilst the Avengers movie isn't an adaptation, you can see a lot of the ultimates within that.
0: There is. And actually, we should. We said we'd go into a little more detail in issue one. That's a bit of trivia I picked up from Word Balloon, which was interesting. Mark Miller planned this as a 12 issue story and not 13. The first issue is supposed to be getting the band together and pulling all of the team together. And Brian Hitch was the one that read it and said, No, Captain America's World War II adventures deserve more than two pages if it's going to be this important. So he expanded that into a full sized
1: issue. Which is rubbish if you're calling it the Ultimates, because it's in the trade it actually makes it seem like issue one, uh, you get Steve Rogers and the letter, and then you just get this double-page splash of Tony in the Himala- uh, on Mount Everest, followed by one page of dialogue about him calling a board meeting, and then chapter two starts straight after. So it seems like the cliffhanger is this inconsequential page of Tony mountaineering. And I don't know if that actually is the cliffhanger or not, it's just how the trade presents it. And it just it means that issue number one by itself is a terrible comic to be called The Ultimates, and definitely not worthy of being on this, but Ultimates one to thirteen is absolutely worthy of being on here.
0: Yeah, and I think again, as as we we're saying at the the launch of this, I think that's what happened is there's the ambiguity of the free form email vote and not some web form people could go to. Yeah, that resulted in it being issue one being listed rather than volume one. Yeah, these thirteen issues are so much better than that first issue. And so we only meet two members of the team, and we barely meet Tony Stark. It's really the World War II adventures of Captain America and his final mission, with just enough of the next team member to fill up the page count and then into the next issue.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: So in terms of, you know, why it landed at this point in the rankings, as we said before, there's three factors that seem to influence whether people consider it a great story or not. One is entertainment, one is the continuity significance, and one of them is the deeper meanings. Entertainment value is here, as long as you're willing to accept stories with no redeeming characters or no real good guys and sympathetic characters. The significance to continuity and the impact on the industry, it had a huge impact on the ultimate ver- or ultimate universe in Marvel continuity. It was the backbone for a lot of what's coming. Uh, in terms of the influence it's had on the 616, that has been pretty minimal although it did influence the Supreme Power universe in a
1: crossover there. Except that that Supreme Power universe never interacted with the 616.
0: Not directly. There was a it's one of those ones where you can connect the dots. It's now faster to connect the dots through Cataclysm, but there's a pretty long chain through Exiles that can get you there as well. Or through Marvel Zombies, a little bit more. Uh, quickly. No,
1: you're, you're just cheating if you're using Exiles.
0: <laughs> yeah, it said almost no bearing on the 616 Marvel Universe, but it did have a lot of impact on the way the publishers handled the comics and the schedules coming out, or at mm-hmm. least the way Marvel did. DC has been more about get the books out on time, even if the original artist has to redraw pages in time for the trade paperback collection. Whereas Marvel was more about, you know, making sure that people who bought the issue and bought the trades were getting the same content, unless the trade had kind of bonus features. But yeah, I think that's, we've established why it landed at this point in the rankings. This was a different kind of comic that was a big part of a massively popular imprint from Marvel. I think in terms of sales on individual issues, this might be a bigger imprint than Vertigo. Not necessarily more respected, certainly not as long-lasting, but and certainly not with the same breadth of artistic expression and the same breadth of variety. Vertigo's had some phenomenal stuff. But I can't think of any other imprint, aside from Vertigo and Ultimate, that have lasted as long as this did. Even if it is wrapping up, it's been 15 years.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that's, a, that's anywhere near a decent comparison to make. Uh, I mean, Vertigo's had its huge hits. Preacher, which was a top-ten selling comic, for instance, across a huge chunk of its run but lots and lots of smaller stuff, which very well regarded, but didn't connect with a wider audience. Um, I don't think it's a particularly apt comparison, I'll be honest.
0: Yeah, it's basically right down to nothing but the volume of issues. So
1: that's about all it has going for it is, yeah, it's an imprint by a, a publisher that's not dead. If you're talking volumes of, I- of issues, then Vertigo massively out of Ultimate, because I don't think Ultimate ever got more than six titles in a month. Uh, that That's assuming you probably had two or that's with two or three mini series on top yeah you know, vertigo even in its quiet times you know the, the post karen era where it really stripped back was still sort of eight to ten plus special projects so I, I think vertigo has the edge massively on that
0: yeah and again the another advantage vertigo has is that it's not a shared universe by and large mm-hmm. there's a lot of vertigo titles that have nothing to do with any other title whatsoever which gives a little more opportunity to spread the line and that's I know at least in the era when I was paying more attention to the Ultimate line because I was collecting it, they had a mandate that they would never have more than four ongoing titles at once. And at one point, they made an exception, well, you can have more than four titles if a maximum of two are miniseries. So they were trying mm-hmm. to keep the line small so that it would be reasonable for most collectors to collect the entire line should they so choose. And then after a time, they stopped producing comics that made me choose to collect the whole line. Yeah. So did you have any final thoughts on this one before we move on?
1: Uh, no, I, I think I've covered pretty much everything I wanted to say.
0: Yeah, I think so too. If you're if you're willing to to read some cynical superhero comics, this is as probably the best of the cynical series. I would say I can't think of <laughs> anything that has the cynical approach that is as enjoyable as this.
1: Uh, from Marvel, certainly not. I'd, I'd argue the Warren Ellis Authority is going to give you something along similar lines, and that is very enjoyable as well. Okay, well, I could very well change my mind when I get through my two read pile. <laughs>
0: All right, so I think that's about everything. So
1: once again, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me back.
0: Yeah, we'll have to do this sometime fairly soon.
1: Well, you, you say soon. I've got like uh, 16 Hulk issues to read.
0: <laughs> yeah, but as far as the listeners is concerned, they're seven days apart. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, join Stephen when he comes in next week to discuss Planet Hulk. Mmm. Now, if you'd like to read along at home, you could find Planet Hulk originally published in Incredible Hulk Volume 2, issues 92 to 105, which has been collected in paperbacks on hardcovers named Planet Hulk. It's available through Marvel Digital Unlimited and through comixology. And it also has been fairly loosely adapted into a direct-to-video movie, so it's available on DVD and Blu-ray as well, although that version does some character replacements and strips out some plot elements just because. A straight up adaptation of the story would be a lot longer than the runtime they had the budget for and would involve characters they didn't have the rights to include, or at least one character they didn't have the rights to include.
1: But that's for next week.
0: Yeah. All right. So, uh, Stephen, before we go, why don't you remind people where they can find the podcast you're involved in?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you can pick up the Fantasticast at ffcast.libsyn.com. We're also on Facebook. Um, you can like our page there. Just look for the Fantasticast. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Fantasticast, and you can also find me on Twitter as at Quiz Lacey. It's a good time to be jumping on the show. Um, There's a good chance you've probably been aware of the Fantastic Four film coming out. At this point, we don't know if it's going to be good or not, but I think we can probably say it'll be better than the 2005 one. And we've done some special episodes to catch you up with the Fantastic Four. So there's two kind of recap episodes recently in the feed, which take you all the way from Fantastic Four number one up to Fantastic Four, about 119, I think is where we left off before doing those. And we also recently did a commentary for the Roger Corman's Fantastic Four film.
0: I look forward to hearing that.
1: <laughs> well, I say re- recently at the time of listing, we've yet to record it at the time we're recording this and I've yet to decide if I'm going to watch the film before I do the commentary of it. So you're just going to get my reactions to it as we go. So um, there's those and, and when we're not doing that, we go through month by month uh, Life of the Fantastic Four and its spin-offs and we're getting very close to Marvel team-up, which we're looking forward to a lot.
0: Alright, so to wrap up for that. After that, you can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher. If you've been listening through either of those or essentially any feed that gives you podcast rankings, please feel free to go on there and give it a rating because it does help new listeners find it or share the links to it with others who you think may be interested in what we're hearing. And join us again next week. And thank you for listening.